Hello everyone, welcome to Darren Matthews and Sometimes Friends, a podcast where I speak to people much more interesting than myself. Please enjoy. Welcome everyone to episode uh, four, I think this is, of season two of Darren Matthews and Sometimes Friends. Uh, I am joined today by uh, a fellow Bestbrook native, Mr. Ali McKenzie. Ali, say hello to the people. Hello, Darren. How's it going? Interesting that this is season two, that you're rolling over that way. Not yeah, just three well, episodes here. No, season one ended whenever I bought a good mic. So <laughs> I was <laughs> like, right. Just right to separate yourself from that. Yeah, um, separate myself from that. But um, it wasn't too bad because a lot of the stuff, things we'll reference in this episode will be a couple of the people that, who we chatted to previously. Uh, on the podcast of, of how, I, how I know you and stuff. So uh, Ali is from, well, you, you used to live in the Brook, don't you? Yeah, I still live in the Brook, but I was actually born, not, well, if you know me, you'll know this, but I was born in Aberdeen. Mm. So just like 40 miles from Aberdeen and moved here in the year 2000. So I spent the first nine years of my life in Scotland. Uh, and Well, with a name like Ali McKenzie, sense. I would have fucking guessed that one. So <laughs> Yeah, I know. The McKenzie is uh, the big giveaway. My dad's obviously, he's like, Still got the full-on Scottish accent, you know. But yeah. bar living in England for uni, uh, I've lived in Bestbrook all my life. Yeah, and you, you'll know um, the real Mackenzies then, who are, of course, Canadian. Uh, they're not even from Scotland, so there you go. Yeah, and the people spell it differently. There's M-S-C and M-C-K. But if you spell it M-S-C in front of my dad, he will literally flip. So uh, M-C-K is the proper way. There's two ways of it. M-C-K, uh, Mac and Mick. Yeah. Both yeah. mean son of, it's just one Scots Gaelic and the other one is Irish Gaelic, so exactly. Everybody. But yeah, I, like, I get annoyed too. People spell my name with one T sometimes, and I'm like, Yeah, because as well, there's different tartans between the MA and the MCK. I would well so believe it as well. That's a big, big thing that, uh, that gets my dad because obviously I'm getting married soon, so it was looking at kilts, and uh, yeah, it wasn't the right one, he wasn't too happy with that. Like, oh, right, are you, are you gonna go and get are you, are you gonna get married in the kilt? I was thinking about it, but I was also thinking about getting trues, so the tartan trousers. Okay. Um, and then we kind of priced it up. It was very expensive. So what we're going to do is I've got Mackenzie tartan ties made. So I want the tartan to be a part of the day in some way, but um, yeah, I don't think it's going to go full kilt. I've done that a couple of times and I don't know, they're just very heavy. They're not overly comfortable. Okay. I mean, yeah. I was, was going to say, patriotic here. You're, um, uh, I mean, you, you haven't told your dad yet that like tartan was invented in the 17th century as like a money making scheme, no? <laughs> yeah. No, no. I think I'll, you can tell him that. No, I don't want to. Um, yeah, your dad's a big fucking lad from Aberdeen. I think he'd pull me out yeah. of is your Is your dad from Aberdeen or is he, is he like Doric? Because that's around that area, isn't it? Yeah. So he was born up in a place called Dornock, which is an island. And then he kind of lived all over, but they settled in Fraserburgh, which is outside Aberdeen. So, you know, we all speak Doric and when the family are all together, it's just like, it's unbelievable. You, you know, from an outside looking in, you wouldn't understand a word that's going on. My, my buddy, uh, Emma Coots, uh, who is now uh, Emma Spurlock, she's, she married an American dude. I was over in uh, Ballater in Scotland for their, okay. their wedding near the Balmoral Estate, but she's from Aberdeen. She's Aberdonian. Her dad's Doric. And we were like on like a stag do. So her dad um, was talking to me and I was telling like the American guys what he was saying. Yeah. Weirdly enough, uh, strangely enough, because from living in Northern Ireland, the amount of like the Scots slang terms that I actually recognized or that I just instinctively went, I know what that means. Yeah. Well, so, so it's interesting actually. I was in Norway in like 2010 and they, they were talking and I was like picking up certain words and apparently the Doric is influenced obviously because it's over at the Scandinavian and coming over there in the Vikings. So there's a lot of words from Doric which actually come from the Scandinavian tongue. Yeah. So I found that really interesting at the time. I was picking up words. I was like, 
I can understand what they're saying. Yeah. Do you know what else comes from Scandinavia? Fucking ginger hair. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. I know. I, I I have to say that the two of us are definitely looking like how we looked whenever we first met each other, probably. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know me before, I was a, a comedian. I used to um, organize shows. I was a punk rocker and I would put on bands for years and years. And Ali was one of the uh, underage drinkers who used to come to them. So, Yeah. Actually, do you know what? It's one thing that we were talking about, trying to think of ideas and things to do in lockdown. And I mentioned, could you do a podcast series about Warren Point back in the day in the music scene? Because it was so interesting. And we, I think we had something, it was like the last time live music really had an influence for, our, for a generation, in my opinion, anyway. And it yeah. was like, you know, live music, live bands, every Friday and Saturday night, Sunday sometimes as well. It was There was a real powerful scene locally, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was good. And weirdly enough, the first gig I ever ran wasn't in Warren Point. The first gig I ever ran was in what is now the modern day Phoenix. It was the Dean. Is that right? at the point. Yeah, I, I ran a gig when I was 17. So when I, was, I wasn't old enough to be in the bar, I put a show on. <laughs> That's amazing though. Because, I mean, you did in Yuri, like you give opportunities to people like ourselves who all wanted to be future rock and roll stars, you know, and yeah. probably couldn't put three chords together. But it gave you a platform and the fact that you could go to a bar, you didn't have to pay in if you played, which was amazing. And sometimes you managed to wrangle a couple of few free beers. Yeah. Like that, that was the dream, you know, it was amazing. I, I myself was inspired by stuff like, um, well, weirdly enough, the first place I was ever taken was the Magnet Center. Uh, a good friend of mine from school, a guy called Colin Campbell, who, who actually convinced me to go and get a drum kit. And the initial plan was I was going to play drums in a Metallica tribute band. Now, no I know, I know Lars Henrik's a shit drummer, but he's, I wasn't better than him when I couldn't play. <laughs> you know, Collie convinced me to, to go get a kit, and then he took me to the Magnet, and that's where I f- sort of first met a couple of rockers. Then I met another guy from Newry from the, the RMI Road called Stevie Miller, who's still one of my best mates. Me and him went to uh, Slam Dunk Festival last year. No and way. pissed up with two old guys in their 30s jumping around watching like NoFX and, uh, uh, Pe- and it was a Pennywise. Yeah, NoFX, Melancholy, and some great bands on it. Like, that's a good year, like. Weirdly enough, I... Like, I mean, you were probably, were you in the music from like a very young age? Yeah, so I started playing, well, guitar around about 13, 14. And um, at the time, my mum and dad would have taken us to church every week. And I started playing in there and just got used to playing in front of people. But I remember like, it was about 16 years old going to the Magnet. And then I started going to bars about 16, 17. But Too Fat for Porn were always playing around at that time. Which is, that, that was the band that you were in. That was the band I drummed in. That was my second band. Yeah. You drummed in because I remember it was it the big day out in the point is what it was called and it was the massive gig that was put on in the square. Uh, no, the big day, the big day out was it was big day off was the festival I ran, but there was okay. live and loud had an addition that they put on in the square in Warren Point. That must have been what it was because there was a yeah. poster for it in the town and I was like to my dad and going to that it said too fat for porn. He's like, what are you going to like? What is this? Yeah. You know, you just didn't understand it. But I remember that era was amazing because. There were bands coming down from all over the country to play in the point. Um, I don't know, it was just a real atmosphere, but I remember every Saturday night just being like a buzz about who you're going to see. Um, and obviously the likes of the Beat Poets came out of that scene. And, um, there was a lot of bands that came down. A couple of great bands. Um, Tetra Neon are actually back in the studio. Are they? This year, yeah. They're from Restrava, aren't they? Yeah, Tetra Neon were always probably, I would say probably the best band. Actually, people who could play, like musicians-wise. Yeah. The guys were great songwriters. Like they were, they were miles ahead of what we were doing. We were just, we were like a fun band. We were worth coming to see because you weren't sure what we were going to do. Yeah. But other bands took it more seriously and were like, we've written a song and we we're like, oh yeah, we should probably write <laughs> yeah, something. Do that at some point. <laughs> yeah. 
No, I loved it. And you know what? It gave you the opportunity as a young guy just to, to kind of explore that. I, I remember, like, I get very nervous before things. And I remember I used to shit myself before going on stage anytime. You know, if the song was four chords, I just used to forget the chords and everything. Uh, you know, it was it's something that even yet today, I'll get nervous before things. And the minute I start talking, I'm fine. But um, back in the day, I remember I used to be panicking about everything. And when you think about it now, you were playing in front of your mates and it wouldn't have been the end of the world. But, you know, you may as well have been playing Wembley. It was such a big thing at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I came from the thing where when I said about getting taken to the Magnet, which was like a youth centre that ran gigs and all the money went back into the centre, which was brilliant. And then when we were doing stuff in the gigs, like I didn't start running the gigs at more in point. There was two people who did it before me. So we would all, if it was the band doing it, as in our band, we would all help out and do it. Then yeah. it was Tommy Mulligan, who's the singer in Two Five for Porn. Tommy lives in Auckland in New Zealand now with his wife and his soon-to-be second kid. And uh, I was out with him last year. Uh, he's out there he was running shows and then Tommy got really busy because he was flat out working he's a he's a carpenter by trade and he was also playing hurling for the down team he was on the down no county way. team so he had no time to run shows then a guy uh, from Komodo Studios which is where Too Fat for Porn recorded its two EPs uh, they were running the gigs in the, in the INF as well but they, they kind of everyone sort of lost interest in it I think mm-hmm. I was maybe I was trying to be more consistent with it because I don't want, there's no, I can't say that I did a better job than the guys because they did a lot of the groundwork, which was, you can come see a live band. And it was just, it was mostly mm. us being reactionary where we didn't want to go to the relic in the bank, which were the two nightclubs in town. Cause we were the kids with long hair and converse. That's yeah, not exactly. I don't want to go and listen to fucking whatever people are listening to. You know what I mean? I don't, I, not, not big into scooter. Love them now, but not at the time. So no, that, it definitely was, it was class. And like, even you know, going down with mates, it created a real scene and we got to know, because we went to Newry High School and you know what the schools are like in Newry, they're all over the town, but you started to get to know people from like the Abbey, people from St. Joe's, who are all into the same thing and it caused for us, I think, a real community in the town. Like we go down on Fridays and meet people from different schools, which you wouldn't have done otherwise, you know? Yeah, it's about, I know normally you would have probably just hopped on your bus and went out to the brook, like. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So no, it was brilliant. And then getting a wee bit older and getting into football as much, Football and music still go hand in hand as well. So I started going from that kind of rock and scene to like the Oasis mod scene where it was like football and music went hand in hand. So yeah, it's it yeah. weird because all I was interested in before I got into music was football. Like as I said about guys like Collie taking me to the Magnet and um, then I met a mate of mine, Stevie, when I worked in Duns. Stevie gave me a big start. He, was, he asked me one time, he was like, what sort of music are you into? And I went, I don't really listen to music. I went, what? And the next day he just had a stack of CDs for me and he went, take him home and listen to them and it was all punk rock um and then it was like a, the first slipknot album i used to think slipknot were too heavy <laughs> I, I can i can sing along don't now you know what i mean uh stuff like idlewild um oh yeah a couple of Brilliant. old green day albums uh pennywise so a lot of real like stuff you would have heard in like the tony hawks pro skater soundtracks got really big yeah. into my like southern california punk rock warp tour bands fat rec bands all that sort of stuff so that became what i want to do plus when you're learning to play drums punk is the easiest thing to do because you don't have to be technically proficient as i said at my drum kit as long as you can count the four and play really fast you'll always find a band yeah you'll be fine you'll be dead because when i was growing up i was massive into thin lizzy and my dad was a huge thin lizzy fan so every band that we were in had like you know stupid amounts of solos whenever there was a break at any point yeah and it was always trying to like play together which never worked because I was never a lead guitarist you know, I was lucky to put a few chords together but I just like that that kind of age of 
you know, 14, 15, when you start to know what your own tastes are and to explore different music. And the thing that I always used to do was like, if I liked Thin Lizzy, I'd read an interview with Phil Lennett where you mentioned a band and I'd go and listen to them and then listen to what inspired them. And it always took you back to like blues music, you know, and yeah. uh, blues was always the big, big thing that I liked. And now I love soul music and Motown would be my main thing. Yeah, I, I'm really into all that. But that, as you say, that all goes back. One of the brilliant things about being a punk rocker as well is all of the albums always have a thank yous list where the bands thank the other bands because a lot of them tour. There'd be three oh, or four yeah. bands on a tour. So they're all thanking each other. And I would go back and go, oh, who's this? This is before Spotify. So you would go, I mean, at a later date, you would go to YouTube and check out a band, but that's after 2006. Yeah. So 2000, what is it, 2003, 2004, we were recording. You'd have to get a lend of albums and be like, take that and give me this one and you'd swap stuff over and burning CDs as well when that became a thing. Yeah, that was interesting because we, like we had a group of mates who, one would be the guy who loved Queen. I was a guy who loved Thin Lizzy, another loved Led Zeppelin. And we had like all the back catalogs. So if anybody needed anything, you were like, okay, take that album, listen to that. And you just swap. And that's, I think that's something that's really missing now because obviously you could send a link, which is handy and everything's convenient, but you don't really have that, um, you know, finding it for yourself anymore. Yeah. There's also the, the, the risk at the time. I mean, I was working a part-time job in Duns and then I would head around to CD Times. So if there's a band I was into, if there's a new album coming out, Paul, who used to work there, was really sound with me. If there was an album coming out on Monday, he would have it in on Saturday and he would give oh, me the nice. album and tell me not to tell anybody. I got, I got like American Idiot by Green Day two days before everyone else did because he, he, he was like, don't, and I was, obviously I couldn't tell anybody, but that, that was a big deal to me at the time. That's where my... That's where I became a bit of a geek about music and then I ended up working at HMV and stuff myself. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that's nice. Because I remember going down to HMV all the time or like Virgin wasn't over in Buttercream. Yeah. And, you know, just spending whatever I had on CDs. And again, sometimes it was, you know, hit or miss. You pick up CDs that were, were okay or me- mediocre, but sometimes you'd find a wee gem, even one song on it, you know. I remember buying a Marvin Gaye CD and finding Stubborn Kind of Fella. And I'd never heard it before and it just blew me away. And that was something I'll never forget because like, that was... You know, the rest of the album's like a compilation thing. It was okay, but that song just really stood out. Yeah, like, do you have any Do you have any um, older siblings? I have two older brothers. One wasn't really into music. Like, my oldest brother liked, if I remember from him being a teenager, it was like Guns N' Roses or Bob Marley. So I'm mm-hmm. assuming that was what was popular at the time and how much weed he was probably smoking. <laughs> and then um, my, my other brother, Declan, who guys at Garth McCullough would know, he's a couple of years older than me, so he's proper Britpop generation. Declan saw Oasis when he was 16. And he's Whoa. mad into that. So he's Oasis, Blur, Suede, Pulp, Cast, Shed 7, all that stuff is his generation. So that yeah. was always in the house. So I was always aware of that music, but I was just never interested. I was, I was very busy. I played, I played the soccer for Brookville. I played Gaelic football in the Summon. I played Hurland for Creve and Bestbrook. I played rugby for Newry for like a year with my cousin. Yeah. So it was very sports, very busy. Just, and I'm you were drumming in between? I wasn't, I didn't start, I didn't start what drumming. Did so this is how much it changed my life. I didn't start drumming. I bought a drum kit two weeks after Stevie gave me the lend of all the CDs. And then by 17, I was running shows myself. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. like I never had uh, older siblings, like I'm the eldest. But I remember when I was growing up in Scotland, my cousins would have been a good bit older, like they were maybe 12 years older than me. And I always remember this because they were real proud Scottish people, like real Scottish nationalists. And one time one of them punched a hole in the wall and he actually had an oasis uh poster covering it it was the union jack which was their old 
uh, tape and it was the Union Jack Oasis flag and they would never have had a, a Union Jack up because they were all Scotland. Yeah. But I remember that's how much they loved Oasis. So Britpop was always kind of there. My mum and dad had good taste in music. Um, they were always into like the commitment soundtrack was always on my house. So that's probably why I love soul music. That's pretty good. My, um, in my house, like my dad was old enough to remember like the show bands, but that was just, that was when rock and roll came to Ireland like 10 years too late. That was like the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> So the world had moved on and was into, you know, the Beatles and stuff. And then in the 1950s, they were back listening to bands very politely playing like old Elvis stuff. Yeah, like Teddy Bear. Teddy Bear. And then, but then my mum, who's from Bestbrook as well, I remember asking her about her taste in music and she was all like Radio Luxembourg. Pirate Radio was really big when she was a kid and she loves ABBA. Still now, ABBA's probably her yeah. favourite thing. That's great though, like, because my parents definitely shaped what I listened to. Because I remember like Mike and the Mechanics albums in the house. You know, just there was just these mad albums on uh, Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell was always on in the house. And there was these great albums, but it was always a wide variety. I think that's why I like so many types of music as well, because yeah. I listened to it all growing up. Um, like I could sit and listen to hip hop. I could sit and listen to anything at all, you know. Yeah, well, there's, there's probably an element of that as well. I, I probably discovered a lot more music from when I started to play as well. So from going from my, you know, one, two, three, four to, oh, you know, you're listening to or a bit of like funk and stuff and your, all your, your groove stuff. It was, it was that one when I really started to appreciate weirdly. Well, the drums. So when I'm listening to music, I can sort of isolate. If I close my eyes and listen, I can listen. I know the drum part. I can hear that. And I love locking in on what the drums and bass are doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guitar can, guitar is kind of like, if, if the drums and bass are that lovely bit of cake and then the guitar is just the icing on top. It's only the flash bit. Yeah, all the well, group and all the stuff is all underneath, and it's all it's under. You said that, like my favorite band would probably be the Stone Roses. Oh, and absolutely! You know, their, their fundamentals are all the bass with Manny and Randy yeah. on drums. You know, like, and we had a cover band. I think back in like 2012, before I actually moved away to uni, it was the last band I was ever in, and we played a lot of Stone Roses stuff. And I was actually playing bass in the band, and Marty Evans was on drums. Oh so yeah. Between me and him, we were great mates. So being bass and drums, you know, yourself in a band, it just like improves that relationship even more. And when you're playing Stone Roses stuff, I mean, you know, it's just ridiculous what they yeah. were what they were doing 30 years ago. I think it was the, the anniversary of the album was a few days ago. Oh 30 yeah, 30 years. Yeah, 30 years, and like it oh. hasn't dated. It still sounds amazing. I um, if you just to keep going back and being very localized. Also, I'm really sorry if you're for listening to this in like Australia or Canada and you don't know where these places <laughs> are. Bestbrook is a small village near the border in Ireland. Um, uh. What was it? I sold Marty his first ever drum kit. My first ever drum kit, I sold to Marty when I bought a new one. So, Oh, that's good. See, everybody's just intertwined here, isn't it? Like? Yeah, pretty much. But from then, I mean, the, after reminiscing, the reason to, to get on the chat yet is you're now a, a documentarian or a filmmaker. What, what's, what's the official title? Yeah, I, I prefer documentary uh, or documentarian because yeah. I think filmmakers suggest like, that you make feature-length films. You know, I haven't really done that yet. Um, but I just like having a camera in my hands and, you know, whether it be like a, a 30 second story like I've done or um, doing episodes or series for TV. I, I just like that documentarians kind of thing. And I think the key thing is like capturing people doing what they're doing and whether it be really short or long, it doesn't matter. I just like kind of getting to know people and uh, watching them on camera as, as weird as that sounds. I, th- I think a fun one would have to do would have been, um, if you had a like you've done a helped out one of Nuri's other most favorite sons uh Gino Lynch who I went to school yeah. with which is how I know Gino so um we when we filmed um 
basically he did a piss take of Reservoir Dogs, but rewrote it on the basis that what if the Reservoir Dogs were basically all in the IRA? <laughs> and from Newry. And from Newry. So it was the Reservoir Republicans and it was a bit, a bit of a spoof and a piss take. But I do remember standing outside the Keys and you were helping set up like a track, so like a tracking shot. You mm-hmm. guys were setting that up. We were all standing there with balaclavas on and the cops drove us. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just going, if they don't lift us, like we're fucking... And the thing was, well, it wasn't just like black balaclavas. Just we're all wearing different colours. Because obviously in Reservoir Dogs, it's Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink. So yeah. everybody had the corresponding balaclava. I thought that was brilliant. Um, yeah, Gino's done so much for you, like, hasn't he himself? You know, yeah. I mean, profile-wise. One of the reasons I was laughing as well, because you're in the Reservoir Republicans, you, you play the police officer who's, I mean, in the movie, Reservoir Dogs, he's the guy who's tortured and has his ear cut off. Yeah. But uh, I just remember the very, very funny line when you, we, just before we started filming, I think we had you tied to a banister or something. And you were like, am I playing the cop because I'm the Protestant here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because funny enough, I was the only one who died in it. And I was thinking, hey, this is a bit dodgy. Because um, I very reluctantly went on camera that time. Because yeah. everybody else got to hide their face, you know. I was the one with a, a very ill-fitting guard uniform on me. Do yeah. you remember? But it was, it was like a, for women. I remember putting it on thinking, this thing doesn't fit. The buttons were on backwards. I put on, I've got a massive head. And I couldn't yeah. fit the cap on. And then they tape my mouth up. Oh, that was a great fun, though. Yeah. That was a great, great shoot. It was a good laugh. And you are saying about people hiding their faces. I had to do a scene where I... I sort of changed out of the gear and put a shirt on and then had to do like a dodgy American accent. So I became Tim Roth yeah, that's right, yeah. talking about the big robbery and the robbery was then changed to the Northern Bank robbery in Belfast. It was, oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, and the American accent was because you were from Bangor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, funnily enough, um, one of my uh, comedy buddies, Leanne McCooey, has accused me of having an American accent on this podcast. Has she really? Yeah, she says I sound a bit American. And I said, I'm probably just speaking slower. So people abroad aren't going, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Yeah, like in New Zealand, you know, they, they wouldn't really get the South Armagh broke, would they? Yeah, I can't, I can't go full, full slang term, basically. So no. I, I, just, I just sound like somebody trying too hard. I have, a B, I have a B at my GCSE English, so about time I started using the fucking thing. Well, so do I, actually. So there's something else we have in common. Both from the broke and we both got Bs in English. Exactly. But what... Um, I mean, what have you, the, the stuff that I know from you doing is well, helping us out. Uh, you you, you uh, filmed, uh, obviously people can't see this because we're not doing the video, but I'm wearing my, uh, my Nuri shirt. Yeah. Uh, you filmed a, a documentary about the rebirth of the, the local football club. Yeah, it was, it's funny because, you know, it was about 2011 or so when I applied to go to uni and I moved away to England in 2012. And like at that time, I just wanted to do proper films, you know, like, drama and narrative kind of films with being the next Martin Scorsese as such but um, when I was in England I started working on documentaries and from a, a girl from Belfast Emma Rosa Diaz who needed someone who's kind of Ireland based but over in England so it just worked out really well for me started making documentaries on the mod scene so like you know for a music lover to go into that was amazing because yeah. I always like I tend to make documentaries about things that I'm interested in so I got to explore the mod scene, the history of that in London. Then we went up to Glasgow and was shot for four days for another project. And then we got greenlit to go to Tokyo. So we did a documentary in Tokyo about the mod scene and how they're buying in all these English bikes to Tokyo, which is fascinating, you know? Um, and then when I moved home, I was just like, right, documentary is what I want to do. And you're always looking for a big story or something that you think is going to really stand out. And I was like, there's one on our doorstep here. You know, the football club, is now rebuilding at the time they were still in the low leagues i thought 
um, it's very interesting. So I messaged Gareth, and I'd be friends with Gareth for years, you know. And I'd yeah, said that's, to him, uh, former guest Gareth McCullough, who was in, who did a podcast with me in season one. Yeah, Gareth McCullough. He's, um, you know, Gareth knows everything about Newry. He's a good friend. So I rang and was like, look, I fancy doing something on Newry. Um, just like a 15 minute online thing. And then as we got into it, it was like, okay, this thing is, there's a story going on here. You know, it looks like they're going to get promoted. And we just kind of stuck with it. Now, like, you know, documentary is a massive risk. Um, people might not know that, but it's a massive risk when you go in, particularly sports documentaries, um, because, you know, are they going to win the fight at the end? Are the team going to win the game? If they don't, do you have a story? How do you build a story around something that when they lose, you know? So it was a massive risk from us, but fair play to Gareth and myself. We kind of just stuck with it for the season. And we just kind of sensed that something was happening, you know? So we cut the documentary together in about six weeks in my bedroom. I was living at my mum and dad's at the time and uh, cut it together. And it, it just worked out really well, you know? It was, it was a massive learning curve. Uh, and I think you, you need those. I would love to go back and do it now because it's coming up for four years. I'd love to go back and redo it. Um, and there's things that have changed, but the experience of actually learning it, you know, it's it's invaluable. Well, you, I mean, the basic basis of it is um, Newry as a club went the way of a lot of clubs that has happened to in Northern Ireland, where they just had to shut it. I mean, they closed the doors like the the showgrounds wasn't going to be used because the team folded basically, couldn't keep it. It happened um, happened Oma a few years ago too. Didn't it? Oma like don't have a team anymore. Yeah, they completely dissipated. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, Glen Torren almost went down the same route about the same time as Newry, but were, well, I don't want to actually say anything there just in case, but um, yeah, they were along the same route at the time. Um, I think Newry being a regional club probably doesn't have the big support. Um, you know, down this way, Gaelic is obviously a big draw for people. They all support yeah. their local clubs. So, you know, Newry struggled and they went down, but they've got that uh, small but loyal fan base and they stuck by them. You know, I think on the first day they had 100 people going to watch them play literally in a park, you know, somewhere, I think it was Rafaelin, literally in a park they were playing. And this is a team that was used to the showground. So it was amazing to kind of see that rebirth. And there's always, people love these stories where there's a huge collapse and then, you know, the rise from that and the, you know, they get up above and get back to where they were. And that's a natural story arc. So for us, it was like, if we slot in here and this works out, this could be a very good story, and, you know. And thankfully at the time, because it's hard when you're younger, you know, to get people on side. Because I was only like 23 or 4 then. So to go to Darren Mullen and be like, I want to make a documentary. And he's like, who are you? You know, yeah. Um, for him to actually trust you to go into the changing room to mic him up. And for him, like he never once said, I need to see it before it goes out. You know, didn't take any editorial say in it. He was just like, you just do what you want. Because um, he knew we had the best interest at heart. And I think with Gareth there as, as a producer and overriding it, he knew that it was in safe hands, you know even if I didn't know what I was doing 100% of the time. Yeah, well, no, it's, it's interesting to do. I mean, when you talk about those, I've been watching that All or Nothing on Prime, which is um, the story of, they've been following a, uh, a different NFL franchise each year. And um, I'm on to the new series now, which is the, the Philadelphia Eagles. But the, the previous three seasons that I've watched, the documentary seems to be a fucking jinx because none of them have got to the playoffs. Yeah, which is obviously what what they want to see. They they want to hopefully follow the team to the Super Bowl. But even then, they've managed to make it that it's interesting watching the team fail. You know that mm-hmm. kind of way. There's there's still interesting how those clubs work, and you'd be like, Jesus, how did that happen? Uh, yeah, I mean, Jesus, you could have filmed one last year about Bestbrook. Did you not see what happened the Brook about the Junior Cup final? No. Why? What what happened? I probably um, shouldn't take more of an interest in this, but you got, my, my my younger brother Stephen plays for the Brook, and I know right. like the manager Ben Trainer and Garth Hughes. They're 
they're all everybody that plays there is from the Brook. It's a real local club. But the same again, the Brook used to have two teams. They had Carn Bain team and they had a, a Mid Ulster team. So they were trying to get up. Mid Ulster folded, and they, yeah. they just went back to grassroots because it just became a generational thing. But um, yeah, last year uh, Brook got into the junior final, and then the team they had beaten in the the controversy was the team they had beaten in the semi final protested about their inclusion because somebody went back and checked all the paperwork and Bestbrook had an unregistered player. That was the That's fault. right. That turned out That's to be the right. fault of the, I think it was the Carn Bain secretary who then uh, quit over the whole thing. So there was a vote that basically said, look, clerical error, don't worry about it. Yeah. And then there was another protest vote put in again. And it, I think it was thrown out as well. And then another third attempt, there was a controversy because whoever the board is up at the, uh, the is IFN Windsor, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. whoever, whoever was up on the board up there, one of those guys that's on that board is also the director of the team in Enniskillen. So, so conflict of interest, and then basically, so Bestbrook beat them three one in the semi final, didn't get into the final, and then the team who had lost went on to win the final and got to play in Windsor Park. It's disgusting, isn't it? Like, because that's something yeah. that you remember for the rest of your life. You know, yeah. And as, then, a, yeah. as an amateur player, like literally an amateur player, to to play at Windsor Park is yeah, would just be incredible. Uh, that's such a shame. I'm glad I wasn't following that though, because that would have broken my heart if I, if I was yeah. filming them throughout the season. You know. Well, we were down, well, we even down to watch the uh, the quarterfinals and the semi final. Semi final was down in Loch Gall, which is actually a cracker. We uh, we like a mini showground. It's very yeah, good. it's great. But um, yeah, well, I mean, from following from following Yuri and then your other big team. Weirdly enough, that now I know that you're from Scotland, but you're a mad Northern Ireland fan. Yeah, it's this is funny. Like it's a touchy subject with my dad, but I was gonna say. Um, you know, I've, I've been to quite a few Scotland games, like, but when I moved over, I've lived here like longer. I've lived here 20 odd years now, but I, I'm Scottish. I was born in Scotland. Um, but all my mates from here would be Northern Ireland fans and have season tickets. So it was about when I moved back from England, I don't know about, about you, but, you know, I never really appreciated Newry or Bestbrook until I moved away. And when I came back, I was like, I love this place. Like, really felt passionate about it. I was like, I love here. And felt proud to be, like, to be living here for the first time. So started going to like Northern Ireland games with all my mates and it just became part of what we do, you know, once or twice a year we'll go to away games and that's kind of like our holidays together. We don't go on lads holidays, it's like football. Um, and yeah, you went, you went to Azerbaijan, you mad fucker, what was that about? Yeah, that was mad, do you know what, I've done some crazy trips when I think about it, because we always say like, okay, you could go to, you know, France or whatever anytime, but when would you ever go to Azerbaijan? So when it popped up, we were like, okay, we're going, me and my mate Gareth Moffat, we're like, okay, that's it, we'll book it. Um, a few years ago we did Austria and Bosnia in the same trip and we had like a 15 hour bus ride from Vienna right down to Sarajevo which was just death and I went to do it going back as well Hey, I, I've, um, done, I've done overnight trains in Vietnam and fucking 10 hour buses and driven through the outback in Australia I know all about that bullshit yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. it is terrible especially with a load of like drunken football fans you know yeah. and you, you can imagine the smell of the bus but yeah, we've done some amazing trips and for us, it's just like, it's just what we do. It's how we all stay in touch because, you know, at the time Gareth was living in America, so he would come home for trips and it was just our way of all getting together, you know? Yeah, it's uh, those, those trips are a mental test. It's like, it's like a stagger that needs to end sooner. You know, that kind of way. <laughs> well, particularly when we did Austria and Bosnia, because that was like eight days away. Fuck. And that's a long, long time. Like, um, I remember coming home from the Euros in 2016 and just feeling like I needed to detox for about two months. Because it was like a bottle of vodka a day, loads of pints, and you don't notice that you're drinking because it's just constant, you know. Yeah. Um, but the crack in those trips, they're memories for a lifetime. Yeah, I think it's kind of weird because if you just went, 
there's a weird thing about sports. If you just went and drank, you'd be on your arse after that few pints. But it seems to be if there's a football game involved, this is your arc. You start drinking and then like plateaus. And you could do that for like 10 hours. It's madness. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. I absolutely love it. Like, and funny, we were saying, um, we found the photos from the Euros the other day and I printed them all out in Polaroid style. So we were going through them and it's just carnage, you know? Uh, and meeting other fans. There's photos of me with fans from all, all over Europe. And to go to a major tournament is something I've like bucket list, you know? And you never thought, you never thought you could go actually support a team. So it was amazing. Well, I have, I have two stories about that. Um, the first one being that uh, you, you'll enjoy this because he's from Newry, but I'm not sure if you ever, I think he only played a wee bit for Newry Town. My mum's um, my uncle, so my great uncle, Seamus uh, Darcy, he played for Northern Ireland as well. No way. Yeah, but he, um, he only played like five or six games. He actually ended his career playing for Northern Ireland. He got injured. They went to Canada. They used to do these like trips where they would send like home nations teams to play somewhere where they needed to promote soccer, basically. Mm-hmm. so they sent, they sent them over to Canada to play like exhibition games and they were playing what was it I need to remember this. the Moose Jaw Select which was they're in Sus- Regina in Saskatchewan in the Midlands of Canada where I don't think they fucking play soccer to this day and um, he, he basically busted his ankle because they weren't playing on a proper pitch they had just yeah. cut a cornfield and stuck up some poles and he bought and at the time he was playing for Charlton like he played for Chelsea mm-hmm. he played for Limerick he played for Dundalk and that was when League of Ireland would have would have actually probably, I mean, even teams like uh, the Irish League and the League of Ireland would have actually maybe had a bit more of a competition edge by yeah. playing in Europe. Yeah, there would have been a big draw back then as well. Yeah, there was less. I mean, like, there's, there's stuff of teams like Dundalk playing Real Madrid in the 60s. Like, the Real Madrid team in the 60s playing. But you have to remember as well, there was less countries in Europe then because you had yeah. the USSR, you had the Soviet Union, which took up like 20 countries. So, yeah. the, so there was no qualifying rounds, none of that bullshit. It was just everyone's in if you won your league. Like, you can go, you can go see, you know, like, Monaco play Cliftonville. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Cliftonville puts up not during the week, Bayern Munich v Cliftonville from, like, 62. Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. Bayern Munich. And was it uh, Lazio played Coleraine at one point? That's it. That's right. how it did, yeah. You know, like, imagine Lazio. And I think at the time they had massive stars and they flew into Belfast International and were driven up to the North Coast. Like, imagine that. You know, th- these guys from Italy in Rome where it's frozen hot and then you're up in the, the north coast playing against, like, you know, part-time farmers. Yeah. There's, those, um, there's a very uh, funny story about... Um, so my PE teacher in St. Paul's was Brian Jennings, who's Pat Jennings' brother. Uh, but uh, Brian was a great footballer himself, but he played... Uh, when he was doing his teacher study, he played for Coleraine. Brilliant. And there's a great story about them. They were playing, I think they were playing Linfield and like uh, the Adam Shield of the Irish Cup or something. And um, the Linfield manager had said in the paper, I think we're going to beat them 4 1. And they went up to Coleraine. I think Brian scored a couple and they beat them 4 1. And I was, as he was walking off the pitch, he looked up into the stands at the Linfield manager and went, At least you got the score right. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And Joe, you know that's what's super about the Irish League is that kind of like. Like, you know, there's a detachment whenever you go to Man United because you never, you never talk to them like that. But yeah. you can always have the crack. I remember actually going up to Lock All this season and the teams lined up in front of us. Gareth McCullough was standing beside me and someone was playing. He goes, well, Ricky, and the Lock All boy was like, All right, Gareth, what's the crack? And, you know, just a fan shouting onto the pitch and everybody just busts out laughing because where else would you get it? Yeah, no, definitely. It's, um, it's going to be interesting. I've, um, like I've met Darren a couple of times who, who runs Newry and like, he's been there for the whole rebuild, hasn't he? And he was there for the up and for the down again and he's, like, he's clearly into it himself. 
Oh yeah, like he's you know I, I think he's sacrificed a lot in his in his personal life. You know, time with the family, time with the wife. Um, I think his youngest daughter was three maybe when he took over Newry and they went down because I think he just got his opportunity and then it went bust. Yeah. So he was determined to rebuild it. So you know he'll he'll forever be like you know remembered at Newry and be a Newry legend. Yeah. To sacrifice that for for local football is just amazing. You know because there are no great rewards. You know, yeah. but it's just the love of the club, which is the amazing thing. And I think that's why we all go on Saturdays, you know, because that's what, that's the big thing I'm missing in this lockdown is the football. Yeah, because it's part of, it's part of your weekly routine. You know, it's your it's like how do you burn your energy off at the weekend? You know, it's getting on a bus with with a load of boys and going down to the football and just enjoying yourself. You know. Yeah, well, the, I mean, to talk about that even more about Nuri, um, Darren King was in my class in St Paul's engines. Engine. Like, yeah. So, uh, yeah, the two Jarons in the class. So he obviously got the football and talent, and I get the good looks and the humor. So there you go. <laughs> Engine, some player. We actually, we spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. He's such a lovely guy. I work with him in the tech. Well, I see him in the tech now again when I'm in. But uh, he, he, again, he's someone who just loves the club. And I think it broke his heart when the club did go bust and he had to move to the point. But then he came back, you know, and I think he feels now that that's home and that's where he belongs, you know. Yeah, well, you're, um, the other thing is as well, when you're not acting the documentarian, you and Gareth are actually, you've, you've started producing. One of the things, I don't really like talking about the lockdown. I like talking about distractions about what we're doing to get out of it. One of the great things you did, which is now funny, was that you started a podcast about Nuri. Yeah. What's it called? It's called the Shed End View Podcast. So go check out the Shed End View Podcast. I knew that, but it's nice when you introduce it so I don't fuck it up and say it all the time. <laughs> yeah, but, I so think about that myself. And then, of course, like I was chatting to uh, the last podcast I did was with a lovely lady called Emma Brennan, who had just opened a brand new state-of-the-art gym two months before. Oh, yeah, I know Emma. Close. So, yeah, so you know the crack. And same with you guys. You start a podcast where it's all going to be following you through the season, and then the bloody thing closes. Yeah, the funny thing that happened was we had never suffered a defeat since we started the podcast. So they went on like a nine-game unbeaten run, bar the Irish Cup, but we don't really count that. So league games... And the, the time that they lost, everything went into shit, <laughs> like the week after. So we said, obviously, football is the end of the world, you know, when you lose a game, that's it. Yeah, well, that's, um, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and Tim McGarry was on, who's another comic. He was on doing one with uh, Colin Murphy, and Tim was saying, what do you miss most? And he, he basically said, because he lives in North Belfast, he's a massive Cliftonville fan. And he was like, I would be down at the club like twice a week. Sometimes mm-hmm. I just go for a walk and watch the boys train, you know what I mean? Yeah, it, it becomes such an integral part of people's lives. Like, you know, yeah. it can't really be underestimated just how important it is. Because the same with the, at New either. There's people that will be down when we're doing the podcast, just watching training or just being down at the club. Um, you know, it has, it has a big part of the community. I just wish they could spread wider and get a bigger fan base down and really push the club up. Because if the interest was there, it would be phenomenal for the time. I think, you know, success might do that. And hopefully some multi-millionaire listening might want to inject a few pounds into New and make that yeah. happen. That happened in Lauren. That happened in Lauren, didn't it? The, like a, a fucking multi-millionaire bought the place. Yeah, the man owns Purple Bricks, I think. And, is that uh, what it is? Yeah, just invested money. But to be fair to them, like they do get a lot of stick, and mostly from from me and a few other boys. But they've done it the right way. Like they've pumped money into the community, and they've got the community support team. So it wasn't just the players in the pitch, which they've done as well. But like they've got community initiatives, and that's what it, it takes because you know it's too much of a draw to sit much. TV and watch football on TV. So how do you get people away? You know, make them feel involved. That's yeah. the big thing. It's hard to do that on no budget whatsoever. 
I um, I actually had an idea a few years ago that I chatted to Gareth about, but at the time the club were playing. I think they were playing in the the Premiership, so I probably wouldn't have been able to get the time. I wanted to organise. Um, I, you know what? Maybe I can pitch it again. I'll see if it makes sense to you because Gareth thought it sounded good. Two things I want to do. Um, I was looking into doing the like a comedy festival in Newry, and one of the things that I would do, which we did years ago, we had a team of comedians from the north play a team of comedians from the Republic. Brilliant. And we hammered them. We beat them to get one. But the IFA gave us jerseys, not the keep. Obviously, they were like, give me that back. Um, <laughs> the, we got like the year before his jerseys and they gave them to us and we got to wear them. Probably probably got them off the under-19s. You know what I mean? I, I had tits in mine. It was just like, hey. <laughs> um, but we got to wear those and we played and we played in like the full gear, which was really good. And they, they, the IFA organized us a couple of uh, referees and we did a charity match. So I like to do that. I also said it'd be a really good idea if we organized Maybe in the off season, the current being so people can get a few ringers on the go. The Newry World Cup and play it in the cages. Oh, that would be brilliant! Yeah, I said we, could organize, we could organize the Newry World Cup and just have an absolute session of a weekend. Like once yeah. your team's out, get into the bar. That that do you know what? That's amazing. Th- those are great ideas because the more and that I, you can do, the better. I was going to say get like get local businesses to sponsor a team, or say the boys that work up in Halfords gives five lads can kick football. Come on down, wear your gear. And we'll, we'll have sponsored teams and, you know, have a rule that it has to be people from your work and you can bring in one mate, you know, that kind of way. Yeah, that is a brilliant idea. That's that. exactly what you want. Yeah, have to, like have teams buy in or have their, their boss sponsor them and then if you win, there'll be a few pounds and then it'll generate money for the club. It brings a bit more community spirit and gets people down to the showgrounds who maybe don't know what's there. Like I get, because I, I don't get the Newry games, I get to the showgrounds like hopefully once or twice a year to watch Bestbrook mm-hmm. if they're in yeah. a local final. Yeah, usually Christmas time, isn't it? Uh, yes, we were at one, I think it was January this boxing year, which they, which they sadly lost, yeah. No, it was a Boxing Day. But do you know what I like as well? It's like supporting the local club kind of gives you that pride of being from this area. And it's, um, it's kind of like you're, you know, it's the figurehead of the area. It's supporting your local team and all that. But so many people locally have done an awful lot to kind of put Newry on the map. Like, you know, yourself and Leon are putting on the comedy club stuff that you'd only usually get in the major cities in the UK or in Belfast or Dublin. You never really hear that happening in Newry. You know, Gino doing his videos. I think Gino's giving people so much pride of coming from Newry because he's kind of tapped into exactly what it is people love about it. They probably couldn't put it into words before, but he acts it out and does it perfectly, you know. There's so many things happening and it's kind of like you don't need to move away now. You don't need to do things outside of Newry anymore. You can actually be proud of being from here and, you know, and push, push the area. Well, I, I have that thing of, um, like, I live in Belfast now because this is where I work and this is where I do my stuff. And yet, I have this weird fascination of putting stuff on in Yuri. Yeah. Because when people, like, me and Leanne have talked about this, me and Gareth have talked about this, when people say, oh, it's shit here. And I'm like, yeah, but if I put something on, are you going to go? Or are you just going to stay at home and continue to complain it's shit? Mm-hmm. We need people to come out and be like, yeah, let's try this new thing. Let's support. And thank God the comedy club's been flying. And now people are like, oh, we couldn't get tickets to sold out. Why don't you do it in the bigger venue? I'm like, no, the, the small is the charm. Yeah. Newry's a small place and there's, there are some small-minded people, but we need to just bring the rest of the world in instead of just isolate ourselves. Yeah, that's, you know that's I mean? exactly it. And to be honest, the nights that you put on, I think I've been there to one or two of them and they've been amazing, you know? And the fact that it's happening on your doorstep is a big thing because, as I said, usually you go to Belfast and everybody down here, like you said, oh, oh shit, nothing ever happens here. But the, the fact that you can put things on and that again, that's what we tried to do with the film was be like, okay, let's, if we can encourage one person to start going to local football, 
through this film, then it served its purpose. Yeah. And like, you know, we were asked to do the premiere elsewhere, but we just did it in the Canal Court because we're like, it's a Newry film. Let's put it on in Newry. Let's get people in to support it, you know? Um, I think if more people could do that and use their talents here, which is something I'm, I'm very keen to do, like um, all of my production companies based here, I've got a Newry address. You know, when I'm pitching to companies or pitching to NI Screen or BBC, I pitch it as a Newry company. And for them as well, it's nice, to, I suppose, to get outside of Belfast and show that the rest of the country has, has talent, you know. Um, when I'm hiring crew, I try to use people from Newry, again, to give them a turn and to let them let people see that, you know, Newry does have a, a lot of talented people. There's a lot of talented filmmakers in Newry. Yeah, there's a lot of, lot of filmmakers, a lot of artists, a lot of uh, musicians. There's so much stuff there. And even I saw it when I was growing up. But it was just, it probably felt like there was, there's very much a glass ceiling. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but that's good to know. I mean, if you're a production company's in Yuri, at least I can, I can get you to film my special in the town hall. That's good. Yeah. Do you know what? I, the first time I went to the, the comedy club, I thought this is the, the kind of charming thing that you'd see somewhere, you know? Like, it'd be a great wee segment, I think. Um, yeah. We talk about it, we build up to it. Um, but that's something I really, I really enjoyed that. So it's great that you guys are doing stuff like that, you know? Well, I, I had the thing where, um, leading back to the other story that I wanted to tell you about, the, the, the 2016 thing was I was living in Toronto when you were over in France on the piss. And <laughs> I was watching. So obviously being from right in the border at that, at that tournament, I had two teams I could follow. Yeah. Vested so was, interest in both. Yeah. Vested interest in both because the two teams were, were both in it. So I was, I was great, but I was living with an English guy and I, I, I think it maybe just summed up my, my neariness or being, being from the broken, being spent so much time in the place was I was chatting to, uh, a friend of mine, Connor Stevens, he's a mad Liverpool fan. Uh, he's from Bath in England. And we went out to watch the first England game because they were playing Russia before Northern Ireland and the Republic were playing. And um, he was distraught that they drew with Russia. And I said, you see, here's the difference between, I said, Irish fans and English fans. And I said, what? I said, you look at those Irish fans on the TV about how happy they are to be there. Yeah. I was like, and you actually think you're going to win. Every tournament you go to, you're annoyed you're, you don't win. I was like, we know we're not going to win, but we are going to have the best possible time we can while we're there. <laughs> and it's so true, because I remember seeing the Irish fans had a flag that says, we're not here to take over, we're here to take part. Exactly. And I, but that's summed up, you know, actually, see just up here, I've got um, Garth McCauley's header. It's signed and framed by him. Obviously, people listening won't be able to see that. Yeah. Um, but being in the stadium for when that goal went in, you're like, I'm witnessing history here, you know. And I remember being on the beach in Nice and somebody came over to me. They're like, do you know all the footage of Italia 90 for the Republic fans and um, Mexico 86 for the Northern Ireland fans? He was like, that's us now. You know, in 20 years or 30 years time, they're going to be watching footage of us on the beach here. Yeah. And it was cool to be actually a part of history, you know, because you kind of take it for granted at the time. And yeah. I remember a mate chose not to go. And he was like, I'll go to the next one. Like, when, when's the next one going to be? <laughs> You're like, dude, you are, you are way more confident than we are. Yeah. Grab it with both hands and jump onto it right now. Like, yeah, that would be me as an Armagh fan saying, I'll just miss this all Ireland, lads. Same as we get into one uh, about an average of every 40 to 50 years. Yeah. I'll go next time. Because like, they waited 30 years exactly for that one, you know? Yeah. That was crazy. Well, there was that. And then there was the fact, um, I, I thought it was good as well, because I was in a bar was it Ukraine? Niall McGinn scored the goal, the second goal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I used to play Gaelic with Niall in Belfast. In Belfast, Matt. Did you? Yeah, he he was a I think he was a Tyrone minor before he um Dungannon took him for football and then he ended up at Celtic. Mm-hmm. But he was yeah he was 
uh, he's a tiny wee dude, but he was he's just so talented at everything. I remember playing Gaelic with him and going, this dude's another level. Like, yeah, well, a lot of my cousins would be Aberdeen season ticket holders. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they absolutely adore him. Like, you know, um, there wouldn't be Northern Ireland fans, but whenever, whenever he was at the Euros, they were just cheering for Northern Ireland because he was playing for them. He's a magician. He's so, so good. Very underrated player. He ended up in Korea for a year or something, didn't he? Yeah, I think he, t- he took a year out, moved from Aberdeen over to Korea, probably earned a good bit of dough and then came back. I'd imagine that one year Sabala will set him up for life, you know, fair play to him. Yeah, that's the way to do it, man. Get over to a, a, dev- or like a country that's developing its league and putting a bit of money behind it. And you'll be a star. Hey, I meant to ask you, actually, Darren, I was always curious about this. How did you end up in comedy? Because I, you were always in the music and then when I moved away, you started doing comedy. I was always just curious about that. Uh, I think what happened with there was I, as a drummer, so I reckon probably with my work ethic, if I hadn't learned to play guitar, I probably would have been signed. But I was always reliant on other people because I was the drummer. But that meant other people got lazy because they saw how hard I was prepared to work. So I ended up being like the manager, the booker. I was doing sound. I was setting everything up. Nobody had to do anything. So my, my kind of drive made other people lazy. Yes. Yeah. So I, I just kind of got fed up with that. And then I made a mind. So Andy... Uh, Annie Johnson, who's the, the drummer and the lead singer in the Dangerfields, who took mm-hmm. me away on tour a few times. So I got the tour like Europe and the UK with Stiff Little Fingers with the Dangerfields. He said, I'm, I'm going to go try and open my comedy night. You should come with me and give it a go. Because once I stopped playing music, I had this real, I had no, um, no creative outlet at all. Mm-hmm. I wasn't playing music anymore. I sold all my stuff. I was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm fucking tired of this because I've done it for like 10 years. I think I'm tired of this. He said, come with me. And then, and then he said to me, why don't you give it a go? Like you, you can talk and you can write. So why don't you? I was like, yeah, give it a wee crack. 10 years later, here we are. Of, uh, yeah, that, that's how I ended up doing it. It was, it was quite literally, I'm a attention seeking middle child. <laughs> I, come, I come from a house of four boys and I am definitely the worst at sport. So there you go. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a try hard. I'm not skilled or talented, but I will work like a dog. Was there like a, did you, were you missing like a performance aspect of your life at all? Probably. I mean, you're, you're saying like you, you, started, you started playing like in church. The first time I got up and spoke in front of the people was at Mass. I used to do the, the readings at Mass. Yeah. So my mom got me into doing that when I was like 11 or 12, which God rest her, meant my grandmother thought I was going to be a priest for a time. She was a very <laughs> Catholic woman and she was like, likes reading at Mass. And I was like, I don't, but okay. It's funny though, because I've never really had that performance bug. You know, as I said, I tried the music and all, but I was always too nervous and even when it comes to like film festivals remember the Newry film got into Belfast Film Festival which is a massive deal you know that was cool for a self-funded thing to go down and I just remember being I don't know like almost miserable on the day and it was such a big event but it was the idea of getting up to, to speak in front of people I just didn't like it you know which is ironic because I teach as well in the tech but I don't mind that but I always find it tough getting up and talking about that. And even any aspect of performance, I just tend not to like. It's taken weeks to get used to the concept of speaking on a podcast, you know, yeah. and, and kind of coming out of Michelle that way. Right. Well, I'm, I'm going to do two things before, before I let you go. The first one is going to be this, because you don't like talking in public. Pitch, where do people find your work? Where do people, what's your YouTube channel? What's your production company? Where do we look for you? Yeah, I'm really bad at this because I, I don't really maintain a, a YouTube channel or any social media channels as such. Okay. Um, the company is called Sideline Films. What the kind of stuff that we're branched into now is mostly TV work. So it's very hard to, to promote that on YouTube or anything like that because, you know, it's all owned by rights. But Sideline Films, we've got a few things coming out this year. Um, 
and I do a lot of freelance work. Hence why I tend not to push it too much because it's my own name I tend to put out there. But yeah, I do a lot of free, freelance work for particularly Afro Mike in Belfast, who are production company. Um, but you can just find me on Twitter or Facebook or anything just under my own name, Ali McKenzie. Okay, and what about the, um, is the Nuri documentary still online? Yeah, I think it's on the, I think it's on Nuri's own YouTube page, NCAFC TV. I think it's on there. There you go. Give it, have a look if you want to see an example of uh, what uh, Ali spends his weekends doing. Yeah, I mean, my dream is to make something like The Last Dance. Like yeah. That's something I want to do down the line. Yeah, which I've been watching and it's fantastic. So, well, it's, yeah, at least you can watch something like that and go, cool. Because you, you, obviously you made the linear story of, of Nuri going on the up and then that documentary, the, the time jump stuff. It's like watching a Tarantino yeah. movie. Yeah, I found that fascinating about it, actually. The big thing that I think Netflix does, all, all these obviously limited series of eight to ten episodes, sometimes it feels like there could be four or five episodes. Absolutely. You know, but this, I think, feels the first time I've probably watched it thinking, okay, you need every single minute of every episode here to understand the story. Tiger King, I thought, was like two episodes far too long. Um, Tiger King probably could have been done in a feature-length movie, honestly. Yeah, I think so. There was a lot of he said, she said about it, wasn't there? Um, I'm I'm fascinated with documentaries, like you know, um, and it's actually got to the point where I pick a documentary over uh, drama. Well, I've I've been watching a couple of music documentaries. Um, ones recently, one that actually was produced by BBC, uh, No Manifesto, the one about the Manchester Preachers. Yeah, which is great. Shows about them growing up in in Wales during the miners' strikes and stuff. Uh, there's one about Fat Records, which is one of my favorite record labels, which is owned by Fat Mike from No FX. It mm-hmm. was like 25 years of of them. Uh. What else did I watch? I watched a couple of music documentaries about some random bands, bands like Fugazi and stuff like that. So, yeah, just re- they're a bit more art house stuff. There's a lot of performance shots and stuff, but it's kind of cool of that raw, vid- like video camera, 1988. This is us doing this. Uh, there's a brilliant one about a band called Jawbreaker, who were pretty much supposed mm. to be the next Green Day, and then their major label debut sold like 40,000 copies, and they just disappeared. But to see the story of that of the band who were going to be. And never were is fantastic. You know, people love that, don't they? You know, like yeah. the kind of you but know. But so what, fascinating to see why. I love all that. Like the, the the big thing about documentary that I love, you know, if you write a short film, you script it, you shoot it exactly as is, more or less. You edit it, and that's it. But documentary, you kind of go into knowing what your overall story is. So okay, I'm gonna. This is about Darren Matthews and how he got into comedy. But then you find like little, you know, tangents along the way, and it takes you certain ways that you never thought you'd go. Like when you sit down to a documentary edit, you kind of, you've got your start and your middle and your end, but it's, it's loose in a way, you know, when you're kind of open to that process of finding out where it's going to go, which I absolutely love about it. And yeah. every time you talk to someone, I find this fascinating, actually, the guy who directed um, The Last Dance says he sat down with Michael Jordan and he only got four hours of interviews with him. Was it four and a half maybe in total? So wow. three hours. Do you know that one where he's like, the window's in the background, it's getting darker and his whiskey keeps going up. They had three hours that day with him. And the second time they had an hour and a half when he's in the red shirt. And that's all he would give them. To make a 10-part series out of that is incredible. Yeah. Well, that's probably why it has to cut back so much to other people's versions of the story. Yeah. I mean, but to discover those tapes, like, those tapes were shot for a whole year and just left. That's amazing. Tiger King was the same. You know, all those old tapes. If you can get your hands on things like that, a documentary kind of... I suppose constructs and itself, doesn't it? And it did nothing with it. It's, it's madness as well. The other ones is one that uh, not a documentary, but it was like snapshots of stuff. Was um, when I was when I was over in Asia and I was doing all those gigs. And I did you see when I was sending this, the photos of the shirt into the Nuri Twitter? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So basically, the local football team were kind enough that I was heading away traveling, sorted me out with a free jersey. And I said, I'm going to get a photo of this whenever I'm doing gigs everywhere. So this shirt's been in New Zealand, it's been in Vietnam, Cambodia. Uh, and I got photos of me like climbing mountains in it and all sorts of fucking stuff. So it was good. And every time I went and got somewhere, I would put it up on Twitter and tag, oh, um, tag Nuri. And I tagged you and a couple of them, I tagged McCullough and a few as well. And it was basically Nuri's best travel shirt. It was on like mountaintops in New Zealand. And then I was, you know, all the places I went. So it was good fun as well. It was really nice of the club to be like a bit of, uh, sort of a bit of pride in taking it away with you. Yeah, I, I've got a flag actually. Anywhere I go in the world, I've got a Nuri flag and I take it out. Yeah. Um, I love traveling, so like uh, I've got the photo up in San Marino when we were there for Northern Ireland game. The Nuri flag at the top tower of it, you know. I try to get it everywhere. There's a photo of me outside the San Siro with the Nuri flag, but I was I was breaking it because we were in an SA Milan game. And you have a blue flag? Yeah, a blue flag. I was kind of darting on. I mean, you know what they're like over there. Yeah, so yeah. I said to Louise, right, you've got five seconds to take this. Go. Yeah. I got it. Like, but uh, no, it's it's great. No, that's good, man. So, right, so sideline films, if we're looking after your stuff, and definitely check out the New York documentary because I think it's well worth a go. And I, I love the idea that it got a premiere in, a, in like a, a big hotel in Newry and then it went to a film festival from an idea you had of just going to somebody and going, can I make you up while you're shouting at people? <laughs> yeah, and it was funny because the, the story behind it was like I went to Grounded and met Gareth after the phone call and we were just like, do you think this would work? And then, you know, for a year later to be next door in the canal court, setting up for 300 people, which blew us away. Cause we thought, you know, if you got the team and their families, it'd be good going. Yeah. But I uh, had 300 people at it. And again, that was just like, you know, just the town's pride, which was just something we wanted to tap into, you know? That's uh, right. So that I mean, great. here, you, you got to make back the petrol money somewhere, man. So you might sort of <laughs> major event. It was funny, like, cause everybody was like, you must've made a fortune. We were like, no, we're out of fortune. Yeah. Like, out no, of absolute fortune. Yeah, you're like, I'm making a documentary about the club and they're like, it's a tenor in. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm paying into the fucking home games here. Yeah. I know, yeah. A free season ticket with every entrance. No, well, no, that's okay. Um, I will, uh, I will let you go because it's it's late enough in the evening. But I, I had to go and watch my two episodes of the last dance. So I was very busy today. No, do you know what? I, when you when you text me saying that, I was like, go ahead, because I did exactly the same like an hour before. Yeah, no, I will. Um, uh, Ali, I'll stick up when I get this. I'll I'll put up your your tags and anything I can find by you. I'll put it up with the podcast. So. I will Brilliant. whack this up later in the week. So, Ali McKenzie, thank you very much. Have you enjoyed talking shit? I have, Darren. It's uh, it's been very interesting. It's good going back over the old days as well. I know, I know. Hopefully, we haven't we haven't went too in joke on this one and bored the Christ out of people being like, <laughs> yeah. "What's up?" So, uh, we'll do like a, a like a glossary. You know, when you hand in an essay, and at the back, it's got all your references. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Warren Point is a small seaside town where bands used to play. Newry is a small city on the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, what else do we need to know? Bestbrook is the the metropolis of all of these. Bestbrook is the uh, culture is the part of the what I like to call the Ulster Riviera. Um, <laughs> it's the Beverly Hills of the Durian Morn area. Um, what else? These are all just lies. Now we're probably I'll probably get a libel fucking letter through the post. Stop yeah. saying stuff like that about the time. <laughs> but uh, no, that's okay. So yeah, guys, uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, like, share, subscribe, and uh, go find Ali online because uh, you're always good for a bit of a for a bit of a crack when the football gets going on the Twitter as well, Ali. So. Cheers, Dan. and I appreciate it. And keep up the good work as well between the comedy when it gets back going and your podcast. It's always great to have something to listen to as well and some interesting people you've had on. Yeah, but we have a, a heap more coming up. So uh, because of this, because we've now been pushed to the, the Zoom thing, which is normally I would like to do face-to-face interviews because I think it's a bit more natural, but now we have to do this. Screw it. I'm, I've booked on people from Australia. I've got a couple of comedians coming on from around the world. I've got 
the 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 cool we um the new logo that I got for the the podcast, which was designed by a, a fantastic comedian from um she's from Hanoi but lives in Saigon, is coming on to we're gonna chat a bit about sort of art and design and comedy as well. So I'm looking forward oh, to got a couple of couple of nice this has given me time to reach out to people and see who wants to come on. So we'll see how we go. Brilliant. Well keep it up. No problem. Ali, thank you very much for coming on and I will chat to you soon. Say bye, Ali. Bye, Darren. Bye, Ali. <laughs>